All of you know this, it is a real challenge uh, to lead worship on your own with a great accompanist singing behind you, but just with you at the piano. Uh, but we have a gifted worship leader in Jennifer Bull, and I am grateful for her. Also, makes it a lot easier when you got a great church that loves the Lord and sings well. Thank you guys for being so wonderful. If you've got your Bibles, would you please open to uh, Galatians chapter 4. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 is where we're going to start this morning. And uh, we're going to finish up chapter 4 and just step a toe over into chapter 5. Uh, Galatians chapter 4. Uh, In June of 2011 in Michigan, a man named Mike Tresiak, 50 years old, uh, was outside working on his truck when he heard the screams uh, coming from a nearby neighbor's house. So he ran over to where he heard the screams coming from, and what he found was uh, his neighbor had also been working on his car. He had removed the tire, put the car up on a jack, Uh, And while he was underneath the car, the car slipped off the jack. And it had pinned him to the pavement uh, across his chin, or excuse me, across his chest and his neck. Uh, And the screams were coming from the man's teenage son uh, who was calling out for help. By the time Mike got there, a couple other people were there also. uh, And there was no way for them to, the guy couldn't budge. He's stuck under the car. So Mike did the only thing he knew to do. And 50-year-old Mike Tresiak grabbed the wheel well and he lifted the car about 18 inches. And then other bystanders pulled the man out from underneath the car and they saved his life. Paramedics got there a couple of minutes later and they were astonished at the scene. They said there's no doubt the guy would have died if he had been left there even just a little bit longer. And then one of the firemen turned to Mike and said, you lifted that car? (laughs) And Mike said, I had to. An incredible feat of strength, adrenaline pumping. And in this moment where a man's life is on the line, his child is screaming for help. Uh, Mike found strength he didn't know he had to lift that car. Today, you are going to be challenged to give a display of strength that is greater than this, greater than the man who lifted the car. You are. You see, Paul is going to tell you to stand firm. And and he's going to tell you to stand firm in a very specific way or for a specific reason. He's going to tell you to stand firm in the belief that you are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. He's going to tell you to stand firm for this belief, for the gospel in your heart, in your life. And he's going to tell you to stand firm against the belief That we can add works or add value to our salvation. That we can earn God's favor by doing good things and avoiding bad things. In essence, he's going to tell you to stand firm against obedience. Or excuse me, against treating the law as a means of salvation. Now, throughout this letter, Paul has contrasted trust in the Mosaic law for one's salvation with faith in Christ for one's salvation. And here at the end of chapter 4, he once more crushes the idea that attempted obedience to the law gives a person a right standing with God. Now, this is not a foreign temptation to Christians today. 
I mean, if you wanted to be critical of the letter to the Galatians, you could say, well, I, I don't really have a lot of people in my life wooing me to Mosaic law. Not a big struggle for me these days. That doesn't mean there is not someone wooing you to some sort of law. It may not be mosaic, but it may be cultural. It could even be a religious type of law that we try to add. You remember the Judaizers who were influencing the Galatians. They essentially had this story. They would say, hey, if you really want to be saved, believe in Jesus, plus keep mosaic law. So what it looks like for us is a little different, but essentially the same. Hey, if you want to really be saved, believe in Jesus plus fill in the blank. Do these religious things. Avoid these bad things. Believe these things politically. Do Whatever the value is, add it in there. You see, it's that plus that gives us so many problems. One writer called it the damnable plus. Paul's pleading for us to just make everything about Christ when it comes to our salvation. I'm not going to add anything more to what Christ has done in His perfect sacrifice at the cross. So in this passage, Paul's going to help us stand firm in these things. At the end of the passage, he he gives us a command. Chapter 5, verse 1 is where we hear Paul tell us to stand firm. In this passage, the Galatians learned, and we learn, to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how? That's the question. How can we stand firm when there is so much pressure to add a plus to our faith in Christ? So my purpose today is to equip you to stand firm in the gospel, to add nothing to the perfect person and work of Christ for your salvation. This passage gives us three truths to remember that are going to help us stand firm when the temptation to rely on our works for our salvation creeps up again and again. Follow along with me as I read Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave, the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. These things are to be are being taken figuratively for the woman the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth, burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as then the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now. But what does scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Stand firm. Don't go back. This is not just about resisting false teaching. This is about you and your position in Christ. Stand firm. Don't go back to that yoke of slavery. How do we do that? 
Paul gives us three truths that will help us stand firm in Christ. The first is this, stand firm by remembering the law is always slavery. Stand firm in your faith in Christ by remembering that the law is always slavery. Now, the bulk of this passage is a story about Hagar and Sarah. It's a story about slavery and freedom. To be quite honest with you, if we did not practice verse-by-verse preaching through books of the Bible, I would never preach this passage. Uh, One New Testament uh, commentator said, this is the most difficult passage in the whole New Testament to make sense of. That's saying something. Might be true. Easily top five. Another commentary I looked at didn't even treat this story at all. They just skipped right over it altogether. Was it confusing when we read it? Surely it was. It's confusing for me. And it's taken a lot of time to try and make sense of it. But there's something here for us valuable, something that helps us understand how we stand firm. So what I want to do is I want to help you understand the story and then make sense of the way Paul uses it. You see, what Paul does here is he takes this very real story uh, from Genesis 16, a story about Hagar, Sarah, Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, and he turns it into an allegory. Now, what's an allegory? An allegory is when we take a story about real things and we assign new meaning to the different parts of the story. In general, allegorizing the Bible as a way of interpreting it is really frowned upon because it's such a subjective exercise. Let me give you an example of what I think is perhaps the most popular allegorized sermon ever preached. Most popular. You've heard this before. It goes something like this. Uh, Just as David stood before Goliath, you might have a giant in your life. And you can overcome that giant if you'll just use whatever resources you have. David used five stones. Name the five blessings God has given you to overcome your giant. Do you see the problem with this? Now, to be sure, allegorizing David and Goliath will sell a lot of books and it will make for some subpar Christian movies. But this is not about overcoming your giants as if that story is in the Old Testament to help you with your weight loss goals. That's not what this is about. Uh, But we allegorize this story. We take the meaning away from it and we assign new meaning to it. It's a bad practice. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the story of Hagar and Sarah in an allegorical way to show us the difference between salvation by faith and salvation by works. So what's the story he tells? Let me refresh your memory. From Genesis, we'll say from Genesis 15 to 21. God has promised Abraham that he would have many, many descendants. But time ticks on. The birthdays pile up. He's old. Sarah's old. Way past uh, child-having stage. And so Sarah says to Abraham, if God's promise is going to be fulfilled to us, you probably should pay a visit To our slave girl, Hagar. Abraham does what his wife tells him. Hagar becomes pregnant with Abraham's child. She has a son. His name is Ishmael. Fourteen years later, God confirms and fulfills his promise to Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah, at age 90, becomes pregnant by Abraham, age 100. That's weird. But it's a miracle. This is the child of promise. And Isaac is born. Now, there are several similarities between the two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. 
One, they have the same father. Two, they're both circumcised. Three, they grew up in the same house. But there are some huge differences between the boys as well. Uh, For example, their legal statuses are different. Ishmael, born of a slave woman, is himself a slave. Isaac, born of a free woman, is free. And most notably, the manners of their conceptions are different. Meaning this, uh, the way Paul describes it, uh, Abraham impregnates Hagar through the flesh. Ishmael is a child of the flesh in verse 23. Meaning that that Abraham, along with Sarah's endorsement, just sort of took things into his own hands. Well, God gave me a promise. It's not happening how and when I want it to. So I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to, in my flesh, make God's promises true. Isaac, on the other hand, is a child of promise. While Abraham and Sarah are involved in the conception, it's still God's miracle, God's gift that keeps this promise and Isaac is born. So this story is what Paul chooses to use as the climax of his argument that salvation is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And there's a thousand places we could get lost in the weeds on this. And if you want to do that, I'll be glad to recommend some books or let you borrow some books so you can make sense of every little phrase. There's been no shortage of material written about this passage to try and make sense of it. But if we were just to scale back and look at the big picture, what is this story telling us? Let me show you on the screen. Here's my summary of Paul's allegory using Hagar and Sarah. He's telling us this, that those who rely on the law are enslaved to sin, and those who trust in Christ are liberated children of promise. Those who rely on the law, the Judaizers, who are telling the Galatians, pick up the Mosaic law, make that your plus to faith in Jesus Christ, are actually children of Hagar, spiritually speaking. She's a slave. Those who rely on the law are like Hagar, enslaved to sin. Those who trust in Christ are liberated children of promise. By faith alone in Jesus Christ, you are Abraham's child and a child of the free woman. Now, as you read this passage, as you study it more, what you have to keep telling yourself is this is allegory, this is allegory. The reason that's important is because this story is not meant to be an indictment of Hagar. If you go read the Hagar story, she is a victim. She is a sympathetic figure. She is not some scoundrel. She's not a villain in this story. She meets with the mercy of God. God speaks directly to Hagar in her distress. Likewise, this story is not an endorsement of Sarah. Sarah is the scoundrel. She's the one that sends Abraham to Hagar. She's the one that mistreats Hagar and Hagar's son and forces them uh, away from their home. Sarah is evidence that God keeps his promises not based on our merit, but only on his grace. This is allegory. It's not meant to speak to the character of the people involved, but to communicate to us this bigger truth. That those who rely on the law are enslaved to sin. This is Paul's warning to his readers. It's a warning not to return to spiritual slavery. You remember a couple of weeks ago uh, in our study in Galatians, we talked about the purpose of the law. Why did God give the Mosaic law if it's so deeply flawed and problematic? 
Well, the reason He gave us the law was not to produce righteousness in us, but to expose our sin. The law isn't flawed. The Bible says the law is holy. And it accomplished the purpose that it was given for. Its purpose is never to make us right with God. The purpose of the law is to show how far we are away from God and how much we need Him to keep His promise. You may think, well, I keep the law, and you might keep it at this one point, but you fail at a thousand other points. The law doesn't confirm we are good people. It confirms we are wicked people all the way to the core. That's why God gave the law with a sacrificial system to begin with. He knew we wouldn't keep it. And that's why we need Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, to come and die in our place. To set us free from this bondage to sin. So putting ourselves under the law again, whether it is a mosaic law or a cultural law or a law that has some Christianese attached to it, we put ourselves under that law, Paul saying, you are putting yourself in chains again. You're setting up standards that you will never attain to. You will only confirm again and again how far you are away from the Father. So don't go back. Don't return to that law. If you think your lifestyle gives you salvation credit with God, you're believing a demonic lie that will utterly destroy you. So This is where you and I, we have to heed this warning. Because the temptation to us, I don't think is as blatant as it was for the Galatians. Here's some false teachers march into town, announce their intentions. It's clear that they're pulling them away from the gospel. For us, the temptation is much more subtle. It's a temptation to rely on things that have value and meaning to us, things that are important to us, but ultimately things that are not Jesus Christ. And that's our problem. I read a quote just this morning from J.C. Ryle. He said this, The world will let a man go to hell quietly and never try to stop him. The world will never let a man go to heaven quietly, and they will do all they can to turn them back. This is your temptation, church. So we have to listen to the warning. When the voices, whether religious or irreligious, tell us, add this law to your faith in order to be right with God, we stand firm in Jesus Christ alone. Second way we stand firm against this temptation is we stand firm by remembering faith in Christ makes you a child of promise. We remember that faith in Christ makes us a child of promise. So in the allegory, Paul clearly aligns the Judaizers with spiritual slavery. He addresses that in the first part of the story. Then in the second half of the story, starting in verse 26, he begins to make a case for the spiritual freedom of the Galatians. So he starts by quoting from Isaiah 54, 1. Uh, It's found in verse 30. Excuse me, no, it's found in verse uh, 27 in your Bible. To make his argument that the Galatians are already children of promise by faith in Christ. He tells them this. Isaiah 54, 1. Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout. You who are not in labor for the children of the desolate woman will be many. Isaiah reaches back to Genesis. Paul reaches back to Isaiah who reaches back to Genesis. To confirm to the Galatians that by faith alone in Jesus Christ... God fulfills his promise to Abraham that all nations on earth will be blessed through him. 
that promise in Isaiah, it went to God's people who were going into exile. And God promised that when he restored his people, he was going to throw wide open the doors of salvation to Jew and Gentile alike who put their faith in the Messiah. It's a beautiful promise, an incredible encouragement, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 28, Paul turns his attention very directly to his audience, the Galatians, and he says this, Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. You're not becoming children of promise. He's not saying you have potential to be one. He's saying you are, by your faith in Jesus Christ, you already are a child of promise. To the Judaizers, it would have been unthinkable that uncircumcised, non-kosher Gentiles trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation would be true heirs of God's promise to Abraham. The Judaizers would say, we keep the law and we are Abraham's children. And Paul would respond, yeah, you're his slave child, Ishmael, not the child of promise. Those who trust in Christ... Those are the children of promise. Not just a child of promise, but a child with an inheritance. In verse 30, Paul quotes Sarah from Genesis 21. Ishmael is mocking Isaac, and Sarah says, Drive out the slave and her son, for the son and the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Paul takes that quote from Sarah to focus not on the casting out part, but on the inheritance part. That son of a slave will never be a co-heir, will never have an inheritance like the son of the free woman will. So those who are children of promise have this eternal heavenly inheritance waiting on them, held for them by Jesus Christ. So this is you. You are a child of promise. You have an inheritance waiting on you. A common temptation, another way to flip this would be this. The temptation would come to us and say, because of your sin, because you're so messed up, you can't possibly be saved. Therefore, clean yourself up. Overcome your sin and your power. And then God will do you well. It's the same temptation to add a plus to our faith in Jesus Christ. Now there's something true in that temptation. We are full on sinners. We are train wrecks galore in our righteousness. But the lie, the distortion in that temptation is that I have to clean myself up in my own power in order to be right with God. That's another gospel. That's accursed thinking. So when that temptation comes... Believe that in my power I can make myself right with God because I'm so bad or because I'm so good. This is where we stand firm. And we say, I'm putting everything on Christ. I'm believing entirely and wholly, completely on Him. I'm a child of promise because of Christ. He's done it all. He's taken care of all of it. There's nothing left for me to do but to enjoy the inheritance forever and ever that He has won for me through His death and resurrection. So you take that slavery away. Push it away. I'm going to lean entirely on Jesus Christ by faith. And know that I'm a child of promise. That's how we stand firm. 
We stand firm by remembering that the law is always slavery. We stand firm by remembering that we are already, by faith in Christ, we are children of promise. The third way we stand firm is this. We stand firm by remembering that Jesus is your liberator. Chapter 5, verse 1 is a well-known verse, very popular. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Especially that first phrase. For freedom, Christ set us free. There's a lot we could unpack in that little verse. But we just have a singular focus. And we'll deal more with verse 1 in weeks ahead. But for this morning, we have a singular focus. One central idea that comes to us from verse 1. The focus of verse 1 is not on the nature of our freedom, but it's on the one who has given us freedom. The law is not our liberator. Christ is our liberator. And he set us free from the law who put us in bondage to sin. Whether that law was God-given or man-made, look, I don't know about you, before I became a follower of Jesus Christ, I lived according to my own law. It wasn't a Mosaic law. I didn't know what that was. I just had a law that I had sort of put together in my own mind based on values I was raised with, the culture I was raised in, the people I was raised around, things I thought were valuable and important. That's my own law, just as damning as any other kind of law. So whether that law is God-given or man-made, Christ is our liberator. He sets us free from it. He doesn't affirm our man-made law and say, look how well you've done. He comes and he says, you need me. So when you said yes to Jesus Christ, he took your chains and he put them on himself. He set you free from the demands of the law so that you could live in freedom. So if Jesus sets us free from the law, Why would we ever go back to it? Why would we ever welcome legalism in any form into our life? That's not freedom. The Christian who thinks they can rely on their works to make them right with God is like a prisoner who's been pardoned but decides to still live in the prison. It doesn't make any sense at all. Jesus has set you free. And in John 8, 36, Jesus himself says, whom the Son sets free is free Indeed, you don't improve on that freedom. You enjoy that freedom. You worship out of that freedom. Although the law might woo you with promises of freedom, the law is a liar and Jesus alone is your liberator. So Paul has told us this morning to stand firm in our faith in Christ. How do we stand firm? Well, we stand firm by remembering the law is slavery. And we stand firm by remembering that by faith we're already children of promise. And we stand firm by remembering that Jesus is our liberator. Those three truths have supernatural power to fend off every temptation that calls you back to legalism. And so now it's time for you to examine your heart intensely. Christian, are you living in the blurry line between faith in Christ and reliance on your works? Beware of thinking that this letter only has a Galatian address. It is about us. You are surrounded by temptations, both subtle and blatant, to make less of Christ and more of your self-righteousness. Do you recognize that temptation? Do you see your need to stand firm in your faith in Jesus Christ? Once you see your need to stand firm, 
you must realize you can't do that on your own strength. But you have two indispensable resources to help you stand firm. They're found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, the famous armor of God passage about how to fight spiritual warfare. Three times in that passage, Paul tells his readers, stand firm. How are they to stand firm? How are we to stand firm? What kind of strength do we have to do that? He says in chapter 6 verse 10, Be strengthened by the Lord and by His vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. You have God's strength, His vast omnipotence to help you stand firm for faith in Christ and against submission to any sort of law. That's not all you have, though. The three different times that Paul commands his readers to stand firm, he doesn't write it in the singular as if he's speaking to an individual. He writes it in the plural, just like he does in Galatians 5.1. He's not saying you individual stand firm. He says all of you together stand firm. Your resources for your strength are God's omnipotence, In your church, your brothers and sisters are a vital support to help you stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with God's strength and the support of your brothers and sisters, you can stand firm in Christ. In 2017, there was a a terror attack in Barcelona, Spain. And a few days later, a Spanish swimmer named Fernando Alvarez was to represent his country in the Masters World Championships. Alvarez asked the organizers of the meet if they could have a minute of silence before the race for the victims of the terrorist attack. And the organizers of the race said they would not do that. As Alvarez climbed onto his platform for his first race, the gun sounded and everyone dove into the water except Alvarez. He stood on his platform in silence for one minute in tribute to his fallen countrymen And then dove in and completed his race. It takes one kind of human strength to stand firm like Alvarez did. It takes another kind of human strength to lift a car off of a human being. But it takes divine strength to stand firm in the face of the threat of faith-destroying legalism. Brothers and sisters, God gives you his strength in his church so that you might stand in faith in Christ. My goal today has been to equip you to stand firm in Christ in the face of every temptation towards the law. You're going to step out of these doors and into a world that does not understand salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And that world is the arena where you, child of promise, liberated by Christ, must stand firm. I want to take a moment to speak directly to you if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You've heard us talk today about Jesus as a liberator. The question to you is, is he your liberator? How can you be set free from sin by Jesus? So did you know that your sin separates you from God? There's nothing you can do on your own to fix your brokenness and your guilt. But God loves you and he has provided one who can fix it. That's Jesus. Jesus is God who became man, who took on flesh. 
we see the intersection of his divinity and his humanity in his virgin birth. And since he is the God-man, he lived a sinless life. He alone is qualified to die for your sins. He's the sacrificial lamb of God. That means that he is God's perfect and only sacrifice for sin. Jesus gave his life and died on the cross in your place. On the cross, he experienced all of God's wrath for your sin. And by his blood, he atoned for your sin. He paid for your sin. He died on that cross and three days later, he was resurrected from the dead. Jesus loves you. And he promises to forgive you and give you eternal life. If you will turn from your sin, turn from this law of your own making, all that's good about it, all that's dear, all that's familiar, turn from that law and turn to Jesus Christ entirely. Trust in him for your salvation. And you can voice your trust in him this morning just through a simple prayer, expressing your faith in Jesus Christ. There's no magic words. There's not a magic prayer. God knows your heart. And if you have questions and want to talk more, then when our service is over, I want you to come and talk to me. You were meant to know the freedom of Christ. Let this be the day of your liberation. Let's pray together. Father God, convince us, please, of the seriousness of this threat. Because we are well equipped at making idols for ourselves. We are well equipped at ripping Jesus off the cross and putting what we think are our good works in his place. Do not let us be blinded by our religion. Do not let us be blinded by our good deeds. Let each of us in here, Father, be certain. That we know our position with you is only because of Jesus Christ. And it is therefore perfect. Thank you for this kind of salvation. I pray for my friends in here that don't know you. That you would call them today away from that bondage. Away from that slavery. And let them know the freedom that is theirs for all eternity. Through faith in Jesus Christ. In his name that we pray. Amen.